You are listening to the official podcast of First Baptist Church of Cape Girardeau. We are a community of faith, hope, and love located in Southeast Missouri. For more information, visit our website at fbccape.com. Good morning. Today I will be reading 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little maid from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the maiden from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten festal garments. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you rent your clothes? Let him come now to me, and he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. And not Abana, and Farfur, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel, could I not wash in them and be clean. So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, if the prophet had commanded you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much rather than when he says to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the word of the Lord. I am not a handyman. Too much laughter there, actually. Uh, I'm not a handyman at all. And one of the areas that I struggle with the most is in mowing. Uh, I always have trouble with my mower. 
Uh, one of the times that I had trouble, I loaded it up in my SUV. I could not get this stupid thing to work, and I drove it all the way over to Jackson to my parents, and my father took it out of the SUV and yanked the cord once, and it started. If I tell you, if I repeat to you what I said and clean it up, it wasn't really a sentence. Uh, but uh, I'm not a handyman. And most of the time, when there's something in our house that's broken, I tend to think, okay, let's buy a new one. But Jessica, however, she is, um, what's the word? Frugal. <laughs> she is very, very frugal. She puts water in soap bottles to get every last drop of soap out before we just buy new soap. Jess likes to wait and buy groceries until the only thing left in our pantry is a can of tomato paste and bullion cubes. <laughs> Jess is a penny pincher extraordinaire. And at the beginning of this spring, I went to go start our lawnmower to do the first mow of the season, and I, I pulled the mower out, and I made sure it had gas, and I pulled, and nothing happened. And I pulled, and nothing happened. And I pulled, and nothing happened. I tried to start this thing for at least 20 minutes, and then I walked in the house, and I said, that's it. I'm going to Lowe's. I'm going to go buy a new mower. And truth be told, I mean, if I did that, there wouldn't have been enough time left in the day to mow. So, you know, that would have been nice too. But Jess said, hold on, wait a minute. We do not need to go and spend this money. So she immediately got on YouTube and started looking at videos of how to make sure you can get a mower to start. And I rolled my eyes at this. But Jess watched a few of these videos, then she grabbed a can of aerosol spray and a rag. I heard her walk into the garage, and she was probably in there for about three minutes when all of a sudden I heard the mower start. She walked into the house and she said, all right, get to work, pal. <laughs> Sometimes, we need to be willing to listen to other voices before we just throw our hands up and give up. Sometimes we need to be willing to let others help us before we just decide that we are a hopeless cause. In our passage for this morning that Avery read for us, our main character is the Syrian general Naaman. He's an enemy of God's people, the general of the enemy of God's people. He's a very bad guy. But every once in a while, the Old Testament will give us a story about God at work in the life of somebody completely unexpected. Rahab, the brothel owner in Jericho. Ruth, the Moabite. The city of Nineveh. Cyrus, the Persian. The Old Testament is 
full of stories in which unexpected people end up being used by God in unexpected ways. Now, Naaman is a larger-than-life military figure. He is highly successful in the eyes of the ancient world, but there is a problem. He has leprosy. Now, leprosy in the Bible is actually kind of a a catch-all word for any kind of deadly, infectious skin disease. It's important for us to remember that in the ancient world, there was no access to our modern medicines. So when somebody contracted a highly contagious skin disease, it was a very real threat. Not just to them personally, but to the entire community. That's why you have rules in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 that lay out that when somebody has contracted a skin disease, they should be isolated from the rest of the community. Last fall, Jess and I took the boys on a beach vacation in Florida. And the Sunday before that, I made a joke at the end of the service that we were actually all going as a family to serve at a leper colony for the week. It was a stupid joke, as it's stupid now. But some of you thought I was being serious. I received two voicemails that week from people who were asking me to please be careful while we serve at this leper colony. And I was touched that you all thought I was a virtuous enough person that that's how I would spend my vacation. Well, when I got back from vacation, Anne Marietta came to see me and to let me borrow a novel called Molokai. It's a work of historical fiction that tells how in 1866, a leper colony was established on the small Hawaiian island of Molokai. The novel follows a family, and as you learn, that multiple members of this one family contract the disease and then are sent to live out the rest of their days in exile on this island. It's a heartbreaking, but also a very beautiful novel. And that's how leprosy was treated in the ancient world, too. It wasn't just a physical disease, it was a social disease. When somebody got it, they were treated as a pariah and sent to the very outskirts of the community. And before we condemn the ancient world as cruel and primitive, one needs only to look at how people who had contracted AIDS were treated in the 1980s to see that we aren't that far from them. Now, Naaman has leprosy. And he does not know what to do. His situation seems utterly and completely hopeless. But then, we are introduced to a new character in the story. And she is literally Naaman's exact opposite. He is an adult, a Syrian, and a general. She is young, an Israelite and a slave. We know Naaman's name. She's not given a name in this story. She is a prisoner of war. 
And we learn from the text that she was taken captive to work as a slave for Naaman's wife. Now, if Naaman is the pinnacle of success in the ancient world, this nameless slave girl is the ultimate example of failure and humiliation. She was taken as a spoil of war. She has no pedigree. She has no distinction. She has no name. Yet, it is through her that Naaman's healing and salvation comes. This nameless slave girl says to her mistress, if only the general could meet the prophet in Samaria, he can cure him of his leprosy. And she is speaking of the prophet Elisha. Elisha, as we saw last week, has been called out of obscurity and is serving as God's prophet in the world. This nameless slave girl plants this idea in Naaman's mind, and so he takes it to the king. He takes it to the king of Syria. And the king of Syria completely misunderstands. The king of Syria seems to think that in order to get Elisha to help, he needs to deal with the king of Israel. What these men of power do not realize is that the prophets are not part of the royal court. Men of power are always used to dealing with other men of power. Elisha is an uncredentialed healer. Elisha is a free agent. He is no company stooge. So the king of Syria prepares this mountain of treasure to try to bribe the king of Israel into healing Naaman. And when this treasure gets to the king of Israel, he tears his clothes because he knows he can't heal Naaman. And now this king of Syria is asking him to do the impossible. Word of this finds its way to Elisha, and he sends a message to the king and says, Naaman doesn't need you, dummy. He needs me. So Naaman marches his entourage and his treasure all the way to the front porch of Elisha's house. And he declares, Elisha, I have come. You may now have the honor of healing me. Well, Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He sends one of his nameless servants out of the house. And this kind of takes Naaman aback. The servant says, My master Elisha says that you need to go take a bath in the River Jordan. And you know, I assume that Naaman is thinking up do you know who I am? Do you know how powerful I am? Do you know how smart I am? And your master Elisha can't even bother to see me face to face? And then Naaman says, I came all this way for this. This is the advice that I get? Are you kidding me? You just watch a YouTube video and fix the mower? I've got better rivers in Syria that I could bathe in. I don't need to go take a bath in the filthy Jordan River. 
I think Naaman wanted something grander, don't you? I think, he, I think he wanted some big, dramatic Oprah moment with the prophet. And instead, Elisha just gives him instructions like an uninterested doctor. Oh, just take a bath in the Jordan and call me in the morning. We sometimes want that from God, don't we? We want God to crash into our lives and to intervene in some big and dramatic way, and maybe God does from time to time. But most of the time, I think we are offered little actions like Naaman. So Naaman finally agrees, and he goes down to the Jordan, and he washes seven times. And when he comes out of the water, his flesh is completely restored. In the Hebrew, it says he has the flesh like a young child. Can I tell you something cool in the Hebrew of this story? The phrase that's used to describe Naaman after he's healed is the same phrase that is used to describe the nameless slave girl. It is almost like Naaman, after his healing, has become like the person he controls. It's a beautiful story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. What can we learn from this story? Well, I think there's all kinds of lessons we could take away from this story, and you no doubt can think of some, maybe better ones than me. But here's the one that keeps sticking with me. How often do we pay attention to voices on the sidelines in our lives? How often are we willing to listen to the nameless characters in our own story. We need to be willing to listen to voices that are different than ours. This girl, this nameless slave girl, was different than Naaman in every way possible. He was a man. She was a woman. He was Syrian. She was Israelite. He was powerful. She was powerless. Likely, Naaman was old, and she was young. We need to listen to voices that are different than ours. We need to listen to women. Right now, in our culture, we are going through a reckoning. There is something that some of you have heard of and others maybe not, but something called the Me Too movement that has caused us to realize that abuse and discrimination has been happening under our noses in Hollywood, in business, and in politics. But it is also happening in church. At the time that the Me Too movement began to become more prominent, another trending topic on Twitter was hashtag church two. And it was people telling of graphic, horrible stories of physical and emotional and sexual abuse from those who were supposed to be their loving shepherds. 
They are difficult stories to hear, but we need to hear them. There are two main theological bodies that have been the most in the news lately about abuse taking place in their ranks. And it is the Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention. For years now, there have been stories that have been coming out about how in both of these bodies, men have been allowed to act in terrible ways with very little consequence. And they have been protected by other men of power. We've all heard stories of how in the Catholic Church, the misdeeds of certain priests have been covered up by their superiors. And recently, it has even come to light that in the Southern Baptist Convention, upwards of 700 cases of abuses were committed in the past 10 years by over 200 pastors and leaders that were allowed to stay in their churches. Well, I, I want to offer something to you. What does the Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention have in common? Neither of those bodies allow women to serve in prominent leadership positions. I want you to think about that for a second. Neither the Catholic Church nor the Southern Baptist Convention allow women to serve in prominent leadership positions, and these are the two bodies that seem to have the most dysfunction in regards to how they handle instances of abuse. Now, that doesn't mean that other groups of Christians are immune. There have been abuse instances in the United Methodist Church, amongst Episcopalians, even amongst us in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. But we belong to a group of followers of Jesus who see things a little bit differently. We seek to value the views and the perspective and the leadership of women. And, and First Baptist Church, I hope that that remains part of your identity. We need to listen to the voices of women because they may just be the voices that lead us to healing. We also need to listen to the voices of those of a different culture than our own, those of a different ethnicity than ourselves. The nameless slave girl was Israelite and Naaman was Syrian. These people groups never interacted with each other. A lot of you know that I love to read books about American history. One of the best historical books that I have read in a long time is a book called These Truths by a journalist named Jill Lepore. It's quite an undertaking, but it's a really good book. It's a one-volume history of the United States but it tells the history of our country, not just in the ways that many of us were taught in our history classes. It also tells American history from the perspective of minority populations, African slaves, Native Americans, Chinese immigrants, and Japanese Americans. We need to listen to those perspectives. We need to learn 
from those perspectives. When I was a youth minister in Kansas City, our church had a partnership with a Lakota village in Bridger, South Dakota. Twice each summer, I would lead a group of students up there to work alongside the Lakota people who lived there. And we worked with a Lakota pastor whose name was Byron Buffalo. What a great name. Our church actually had a 20-year partnership with this community. We had committed to going up there and working with them for the next 20 years. And we sought to go up there not as, not as white knights who were there to solve all their problems, but as people who were seeking to partner with them in what they wanted to do to help their own community. But that was new for me, I have to be honest. I was raised on mission trips where our group would go and we would build something and take pictures and then we'd go back and tell our church about it. And those are wonderful things. But one time I remember going on a mission trip, helping to build a school, and on our way back to the airport, seeing a building on the side of the road. And I asked one of our tour guides, what's that building? And he said, that's the school that the group built last summer. So we sought to try to do missions differently with this village. And I had to learn. I was first, uh, the first year that I did this, I was, I was organizing this trip for our youth, and I wanted to try to build in some fun time for them too. So as a part of the trip, I planned for us to go see Mount Rushmore. I was on the phone with, with Byron Buffalo, and I was telling him about our trip. And when I told him about going to see Mount Rushmore, it got really silent. Brother Tyler, he said, I humbly ask that you reconsider adding that to your trip. And if you do decide to go, please do not tell anybody in Bridger that you're going there. At first, I was taken aback, and, and to be honest with you, I was kind of defensive. Well, why not? What was the harm? But Pastor Buffalo began to explain to me that the Black Hills of South Dakota had been holy ground for the Lakota people, and the United States government had taken those hills and carved the faces of four of their leaders onto those sacred hills. I was uncomfortable in that moment. But God used that man to teach me to be a little bit more aware, to have a little bit more perspective. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong to go to Mount Rushmore. But I am saying that I heard something that day that I needed to hear. I learned something that day that I needed to learn. You all know this. Cape Girardeau is still a segregated town in many ways. If you cross William Street, it's two different communities. I don't have any good answers. But I do want to highly, highly encourage you to be involved in an organization here in Cape Girardeau called One City. 
It's a Christian organization whose sole purpose and mission is to, to try to bring people of different backgrounds in Cape Girardeau together. We need to listen to the voices of those who are culturally different than us because they may just lead us to healing. Finally, we need to listen to the voices on the sidelines of those who are a different generation than us. We are a very polarized and divided society. It feels like we can hardly talk about anything anymore without getting into an argument about morals and politics. And that feels especially true with regard to age. But we need each other. We young people need the wisdom and the insight that comes from older people. And older people need the wisdom and the insight that comes from younger people. As my days as your pastor draw to a close, there are a handful of memories that I will carry with me forever as especially precious memories. Most of those memories involved intergenerational community. The first time I sat around a table in Chateau Girardeau with our residents who lived there, and they told me jokes that they said I'm not allowed to tell from the pulpit. <laughs> well, one of the most precious of those memories happened a few months ago. Our youth ministry invited our senior adult ministry to join them for a movie night. And we watched the movie Up. If you haven't seen Up, you should. It's the story of Carl Fredrickson, an elderly widower who ends up partnering with Russell, a young Boy Scout in his neighborhood. They form a friendship, and as they do, that they find that even though they didn't know it, they are exactly what one another needed in their lives. About 30 of us crammed into the youth room back there to watch this movie together. It was senior adults, and it was youth, and it was kids. It happened to be Ron and Ina Winstead's 50th wedding anniversary, so we had chocolate cake for them. I watched as Kyle and Katie Collier sat next to their grandparents and watched this movie. I saw my son Henry passing popcorn to Virginia Davis. For me, it was a holy and a sacred evening, and it was the best picture of what the church can be. We are so often divided in our own age brackets in church. Oftentimes, the youth go to youth Sunday school and then go to youth group, and then on Wednesday nights, they do youth stuff, and the kids have kids stuff, and they do kids stuff, and they do kids stuff, and the senior adults have a senior adult study, and a senior adult study, and a senior adult study. There's like seven each week. How often do we take the time to realize that we need to get out of our own age brackets because we need each other. 
We need to learn from one another. We need to gain wisdom from one another. We need to listen to one another. So here's some advice that I have for you. Every single one of you should have a friend that you seek wisdom from who is older than you. And every single one of you need to have a friend that you seek wisdom from who is younger than you. The Syrian general, Naaman, needed to listen to the voice of this nameless Israelite girl. This story is about God using the voice of this young female slave to speak words of hope and healing into this man's life. We need to listen to the sideline voices around us. Those we have marginalized, those we have pushed to the edge. We need to listen to the sideline voices. So the real question, the real question, friends, is are we listening? Pray with me. God, I ask that you would help us to be people who listen for the voice of the Spirit at work among us and that maybe the Spirit is working through voices that we don't often hear, voices that have been pushed to the sidelines. Give us open ears and open minds to what you want to say to us today. Amen.